we have walked through this journey of Advent. We've gone from hope to peace to joy, and now we come today to love. That wonderful word, love. These weeks have been an anticipation of the coming of Christ, and we celebrate the birth of Jesus by it. Now, many of you, if not tonight here, somewhere, more than likely, you're going to read the Nativity. You're going to read the accounts of Jesus' birth. But this morning, I want to fast forward roughly 30 years. So if we were watching a movie, we would be panning, right? The, the 30 years later, we'd come on the screen. And what would emerge? Well, you'd have Jesus by this time, at least according to John's gospel. You'd have Jesus having already been identified by John the Baptist. He would have already called some of his disciples. He would have already revealed his glory at the wedding, turning water to wine. He would have already cleared out his father's house, getting rid of the mockery. I want to fast forward from that night in the stable with Joseph and Mary. I want to fast forward to another night. It's a night in John chapter 3. It's a night during the Passover, and that's real important because that sets the stage for what's happening. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Uh, Nicodemus, he's a Pharisee. He comes to Jesus, and he says, we know that you have come from God. He's thinking, more than likely, he's got this in mind, that this Jesus, given the signs that he's that he's, that he's doing, giving what he's saying. This guy is like that prophet from, that, like, like that prophet that, or the prophet that's like Moses. So that's a nice setup for Jesus to create some problems for Nicodemus. He says to him, you must be born again to enter the kingdom. Now again, remember, this is a Pharisee, Nicodemus. This is during Passover, and it can't be lost on Nicodemus. I'm sure it's not. He's thinking, wait, we are in the kingdom of God. Why are you saying that we need to be born again? Jesus says, wait, you must be born of water and spirit, right? Flesh, born of flesh is flesh, born of spirit is spirit. Again, remember. This is Passover, celebration when Jews and the Israelites, the firstborn son of God, Exodus 4. Remember, this is their celebrating when God brought them out of Egypt, wait for it, through the water and formed them into this people. And Jesus says, you must be born of water and spirit. What Jesus is telling Nicodemus is, this does not make you part of the kingdom of God. Being a Jew, being an Israelite, by default, no. 
Jesus says those who are born of the Spirit are like the wind. It's those who are born of the Spirit that are like the wind. They come from all over the place and see the kingdom and enter the kingdom. Jesus is referencing that work of the Spirit that comes with the Messiah. Being in the kingdom now, this is what Jesus is saying, this is what he'll spend the rest of John saying, that being in the kingdom, being the people, does not revolve around the temple, does not revolve around Torah, it revolves around me. And then Jesus hits Nicodemus with a sobering truth. He says, you're a master teacher of Israel, and you don't know this. You should know this. Being an Israelite does not make you automatically in. He says, you've missed it. You've missed our testimony. Mine and the Father's. We've given this testimony. We've made known what we have seen. But you, y'all, he says to Nicodemus, you, the other leaders, people, you don't receive it. And then Jesus says this, If I told you earthly things and you did not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You sit here this morning in a similar place that Nicodemus found himself. You this morning, Jesus says, If I tell you heavenly things, will you hear it? If I tell you heavenly things, will you believe it? This morning is about those heavenly things. Those heavenly realities that Jesus proclaims. And we find it in John chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. If you'll stand together with me for the reading of God's word. Beginning in John John chapter 3, verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Father, again we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to these heavenly things by the work of your Spirit. We pray that you would comfort us that you would convict us, that you would transform us, that you would be faithful to your promise, that your word would not return void. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 13 through 17, there we have those heavenly things, and those heavenly things that you see there are about an amazing love. Amazing love. I'll break this up into just a few pieces. 
those heavenly things, about an amazing love, those heavenly things are about, first of all, the Son's mission. Seven, uh, 13 through 15. Jesus starts out, now remember, he's just said, if I tell you earthly things and you do not believe, how can I tell you heavenly things? And then he says, and, and here's, here's, the, here's the cue, Nicodemus. Nobody has ascended to heaven to be able to tell you these heavenly things, except only the one who has descended. Me, Jesus says. I mean, John 1's already made that clear. But Jesus is saying, I can tell you heavenly things because I come from there. I descended. And he shows uh, Nicodemus how he surpasses Moses. He gives the illustration of Numbers 21, 6 through 9, where Moses lifts up the staff that's the bronze serpent, and everybody looks and they get healed because they've been bitten by the fiery serpents. Serpents, not servants, serpents. Because of the rebellion. And when they look at the bronze serpent, right, healed. What Jesus says, the Son of Man, that's me, must be lifted up like that. As Moses lifts up that staff, so the Father will lift me up. Lift me up to give life. In other words, what Jesus is saying here, the heavenly reality that he's pointing out, is that I descended from there in order to carry out this mission of the Son of Man, which is being lifted up, which includes cross, death, resurrection, and exaltation. Uh, John smashes all of those things together in this phrase, lifted up. So he comes from there to here and goes back to there, as he says, so that he can give life. This son of man, this one with divine authority, this one who is the suffering servant. That's what these heavenly realities are about, the son's mission. What Jesus also reveals here in these heavenly things is about the grounds for that mission. And this is where we get to kind of like the centerpiece, the focal point. I mean, if you look at uh, 13 through 17, verse 16 is right there, right in the middle of stuff that's the same on both sides. Verse 16 is incredibly important. It is the grounds of this mission. John says, for God so loved the world. I say it's the grounds because John says for, right? Here is the reason that the Son of Man does that. Because God loved, or so loved. And we need to see how precious is that truth, this love, from just a few observations about it. Think again about who so loved. 
John says it's the Father's love. That is implied in the fact that it is his Son that he sends. A Father's love. And it's a truth that you must treasure. It's a truth that you cannot afford to take for granted. From that we see that the Father, God the Father, is not like the gods of ancient myths, merely tolerating you disgusting humans, reluctant to give you anything. That is not the Father that Jesus reveals in these heavenly things. The Father that he reveals, the God that he reveals, is the fountain of all gracious gifts. The Father's love, and this is simple, but it is really, really important. The Father's love comes before the mission. It comes before. The Father's love drives that mission. And I, ha I feel compelled to tell you that because I think more often than not, we tend to think of the Father as stingy, miserly, as though Jesus is there saying, now Dad, it's okay, calm down. Somehow that the Father just hated you until Jesus died. No. The Father loved you before that. John Owen answers an objection from someone who says, I can't receive the Father's love. And actually, this may be you. He says, but some may say, and this is older English, okay, so just work with me. But some may say, alas, how shall I hold communion with the Father in love? I know not at all whether he loves me or no. And shall I venture to cast myself upon it, the Father's love? How if I should not be accepted? Should I not rather perish for my presumption? than find sweetness in his bosom. God seems to me only as a consuming fire and everlasting burnings, so that I dread to look unto him. That may be some of you. If not overtly, maybe implicitly. It's back there. Owen says this, our knowing of it, and this is important, is our believing it as revealed. This is the assurance which at the very entrance of walking with God you may have of this love. He who is truth has said it. How can I know the Father's love? For God so loved the world. He said it. 
said it. Whatever your heart says, whatever Satan says, unless you will take it up onto this account that he said it, you do your endeavor to make him a liar who's spoken it. You know his love because he said it. We also get a picture of this love, this amazing love, by what the Father loved. And don't miss this. This is important. What did the Father love? The Father loved the world. And of course, that means, in the context, right, Jews and Gentiles. I mean, that's part of the conversation that he's having with Nicodemus. And it goes all over. Not just Israel. But also note how John describes the world. In one, the world is darkness. The world did not know the light. The world, where his people were, did not receive the light. The world is a world that needs its sin taken away. Later in chapter 3, you'll see the world is a world that loves darkness and does evil works does wicked things and hates the light. Now the Father's love stands out here not because of how big the world is and how many people there are. The Father's love stands out because the world is a very, very, very bad place. It's a place of rebellion. It's a world noteworthy for its rejection of God. That's the world the Father loved. That world. I have to ask you, do you find that astounding? That the Father loved that world. See, I know you don't because I can see your faces right now. It's commonplace, isn't it? I mean, you get it, right? This is astounding that that is the world that God loved. We don't need to recognize this so that we can all submerge ourselves in a warm bath of self-loathing. That's not the point. The point is that we stand amazed and astounded by this Father's love. And you can only do that if you see yourself as part of that world that He loved. This is the way Paul says it. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for you, the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, you, Christ died for you. And he says, for while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We recognize this love, that this father loved, and that this father loved that world, that world that you are part of. We recognize it so that we can see how glorious and amazing the love of God is for us. We also see this amazing love in how the Father loved that world. Verses 16 and 17. The Father loved by sending His only begotten Son. The Father loved by giving his only begotten Son. Or we could say it this way. The Father loved by sending His only begotten Son to give His only begotten Son. His purpose to love through His Son goes all the way back to the beginning of the biblical story. This was true through Abraham and his offspring. The blessing was to come to all the families of the earth, the nations. And that plan finds its fulfillment in the Son of God, in the incarnation, Jesus Christ. He gave His only begotten Son as a sacrifice for sin. That's implied in what He's already said about being lifted up. We already know that John has said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He gave his son as a sacrifice for sin, that darkness and evil and wickedness. Paul said it this way. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's an argument from greater to lesser. He did not spare his own son. And his own son is everything. The Father has opened his heart towards you through his Son. He has poured out his affection on you through his Son. And he has shown you love, self-sacrificing, self-giving love. That first line of that song, How Deep the Father's Love. How deep the Father's love for us how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch, you, his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away as wounds which, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons, you, to glory. That's the grounds of this mission, God's love. That's the core, that's what drives it. 
These heavenly things are about one last thing. I'm not going to forget it. It's about the purpose of this mission. The Father sent His Son to a place of death and condemnation. Right? 15, 16, 17. Death and condemnation. The Son deals with the problem of condemnation. That is judgment for sin. Incidentally, a judgment which the world is already under. In verse 7, it says, 17, The Father sent, not, sent the Son not to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through Him, that the world would be delivered, would be rescued through Him, delivered from judgment. And His Son deals with the problem of death. We see that in 15 and 16, it's almost the exact same language. In 15, it's that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then in 16, it's that whoever believes in him should not perish, die, be destroyed, but have eternal life. In both, the Father's Son provides not physical life, like Moses the death of the Son of God provides eternal life, life of the age to come. This kind of life is the life that Jesus mentions in John 17. Verse 3 says, And this is eternal life, that you, that they may know you, God the Father. The only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. In other words, what Jesus gives us through his death, what the Father gives us through his death, is communion with the triune God. Now let's rewind again back those 30 years. There, at the Nativity, with Joseph and Mary and the baby, Jesus. The Son of God descended from heaven to fulfill a mission for a world loved by the Father. That's what that little baby came to do as you observe and reflect on Jesus in the manger, note that this, all that we've said, is what lays ahead of him. James Hamilton put it this way. There was nothing the world needed more than for God's wrath to be assuaged. There is nothing more valuable to the Father than Jesus. There is no greater length to which anyone could go to show love. No way for greater love to be convincingly demonstrated than for ultimate value to be sacrificed for ultimate need to accomplish an ultimate salvation. 
That is what our Lord Jesus Christ does for us, has done for us, and will do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love. We thank you that you love this world that rebels against you. We thank you that you showed grace and mercy to rebels like us. Lord, we pray that we would be astounded. We pray that we would be amazed by this love, by these heavenly realities that your Son has revealed. Pray that you would take them on this night as we celebrate the birth of your Son. We pray that we would treasure them that we would give the honor and the glory and the praise and the blessing due to you for giving your son for us. Giving him so that we might have you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.